you are now listening to the July 15th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the Screw Tape Letters, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with the Screw Tape Letters. Hello everyone, I am Terry Park. We meet again for our new program, A Christian Who Reads Book. Today, we continue sharing the reading of C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. As previously explained, the book features two devils, the seasoned devil named Screwtape and a novice devil, Wormwood, that happens to be Screwtape's nephew. Screwtape writes letters to advise his nephew on how to develop into a more proficient and competent devil. In this regard, the patients mentioned in the book refer to the people each devil is responsible for. Also, since the letters are written from the perspective of the devils, the term enemy in the book is used to refer to Jesus Christ. In our previous session, the seasoned devil screw tape taught his novice nephew Wormwood how to sow disappointments among believers and spread misunderstanding among them. What strategy will he teach his nephew today? In spiritual life and daily life alike, the person who caused most difficulties is often someone closest to us. For example, within families, despite being the ones that love each other the most, we can also become the ones that hate each other the most. There are often cases where siblings who live in the same house do not speak for years due to a deep-seated family feud. It seems that animosity or hatred among family members can be more severe compared to that of casual acquaintances. Why is that? Is it because they know each other too well? If they know each other well, they should be grateful and appreciative of each other. But at the same time, they can become upset and misunderstand each other over trivial things. Perhaps the expectations are higher because family members trust and rely on each other. This is why the wounds inflicted by each other may hurt more and be more painful than those inflicted by strangers. The root cause of bitterness often comes from within the family. Insecurities such as feelings of inferiority, low self-esteem, and victim mentality may stem from past painful experiences and wounds within the family. Parents may constantly compare their children to others or force their own unfulfilled dreams onto their children. Or, while parents may appear to be gentle and gracious to others, they may be authoritarian and hurtful to their children. Children who grew up in such an environment found never to be like their parents, but may eventually realize that they have become just like their parents with all their negative traits. What is family? The family is the first community that God created, and He has a plan to extend it to all humanity. However, Satan is opposed to God's plan and seeks to destroy families by sowing discord, division, and distrust among family members, and eventually, family members may hate each other. Satan uses condemnation and hatred to drive family members apart and hinder their spiritual growth. Even in our prayers for one another, we may in fact be condemning each other rather than uplifting each other. Consider the following phrases that could appear in our prayers. Lord, please correct this bad habit. Lord, he will be a good person when he corrects that. Lord, change the person into this and that. 
Such prayers are motivated by our own discomfort or dislike of certain aspects of others. Clearly, there are not beautiful prayers that may transform our souls into holy characters before God. It does not end there. In fact, they may become attacks that invite Satan's influence. Prayers of this kind can make us feel even more hateful towards others and prevent peace from entering our hearts. In the third letter of Screwtape, there is a passage that reads, Among the patients that I have encountered with, there are people who do not hesitate to curse and use violence toward their wives or children, even while they were praying for their souls. The phrase, the patients I am treating, in the book refers to those that come under the influence of a devil such as screw tape or wormwood. These devils even target those who are praying for their family souls and do not hesitate to use profanity and violence toward the very family they were praying for. It seems unbelievable, but when you think about it, you might remember having come across similar situations. Although there may be varying degrees, we find in ourselves having moments like that. Suppose you are praying. You see yourself having an intimate time with the Lord. Then, all of a sudden, a family member interrupts you and asks for food or where their socks are. Even though these are trivial things, you may find yourself getting angry at this family member. You may give a sarcastic remark asking why now or yell at them to get their own food or find their own socks. C.S. Lewis, however, tells us that these things are all part of the devil's attack. We have obtained salvation through faith by believing in our Lord Jesus Christ, who was resurrected by God from the dead, and we are still undergoing a process of continual sanctification. We have not been completely sanctified yet. Therefore, we should first see ourselves as people who have not yet been perfected. How can I judge and condemn other brothers and sisters when I am not yet perfect? How can I be angry with them? When we see each other's weaknesses, we should instead have mercy and embrace each other and pray that those weaknesses may be overcome with power of Christ. We should be grateful for God's continual grace and love and that He will never give up on us. Let us do our best not to be a slanderer who interferes with that path. We must remain loyal and follow only the Lord with love and gratitude for Jesus Christ who saved us, just as he climbed the hill of Golgotha according to God's will. If we forget that grace, we will undermine God's blessings on our lives. We will close for today by reading an excerpt from the third letter that Screwtape wrote to Wormwood. When two humans have lived together for many years, it usually happens that each has tones of voice and expressions of faith which are almost unendurably irritating to the other. Work on that. Bring fully into the consciousness of your patient that particular lift of his mother's eyebrows, which he learned to dislike in the nursery, and let him think how much he dislikes it. Let him assume that she knows how annoying it is and does it to annoy. If you know your job, he will not notice the immense improbability of the assumption. And of course, never let him suspect that he has tones and looks which similarly annoy her. As he cannot see or hear himself, this is easily managed. In civilized domestic hatred usually expresses itself by saying things which would appear quite harmless on paper, but in such a voice or at such a moment that they are not far short of a blow in the face. 
to keep this game up, you and Glubos must see to it that each of these two fools has a sort of double standard. Your patient must demand that all his own utterances are to be taken at their face value and judged simply on their actual words, while at the same time judging all his mother's utterances with the fullest and most oversensitive interpretation of the tone and the context and the suspected intention. She must be encouraged to do the same to him. Hence, from every quarrel they can both go away convinced or very nearly convinced that they are quite innocent. You know the kind of thing. I simply ask her what time dinner will be and she flies into a temper. Once this habit is well established, you have the delightful situation of a human saying things with the express purpose of offending and yet having a grievance when offense is taken. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Malachi Tresler of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix. Today's topic is The Remnant. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Malachi. Past summer, I had the pleasure of interviewing some of you in order to collect audio recordings of your testimonies. 
Uh, membership interviews are always one of my favorite things that I get to do because I get to hear about how the Lord has been at work in, in people's lives. And we have published four of those interviews so far. The podcast is called Gospel on the Ground. You can find it under the Resources tab on our website, or you can find it on iTunes or Spotify as well. And there are five more interviews to be released in the coming weeks as well. But what I love about these interviews is that there's so much diversity in our stories. We have come from so many different places. Uh, Some grew up in the church, and they don't really have any sort of blockbuster, dramatic testimonies, stories of seasons of rebellion or sin. Some people have what we sometimes think of as just being boring testimonies, because it doesn't seem like there was much of a dramatic story to it. Some people are like, I don't know why you want to interview me. My life wouldn't really even fill a haiku, much less an interview. I don't know that there's that much to talk about. And yet there's still a miraculous work of God that happens even in the most mundane testimonies. These are the sorts of testimonies and stories that I pray that my children are able to tell one day. And then there are other stories that do include some more drama, if we can put it in that way, the drama of redemption, perhaps. And then there are most other stories that fall in between those two poles. But one recurring theme that I picked up on throughout the summer interviewing various folks is that if you hit pause in anyone's story at a given moment in time, you may be tempted to think, this is not going to end well. This is not going to go well. This tragedy or this horrible sinful action, this diagnosis, this crime, or this one seemingly small choice that didn't really seem like a big deal at the time, but has had such tragic and deep repercussions, or a decision that my parents made on my behalf. You might hear those stories, and and if you pause, you might think, man, any one of those could have led you on a path of turning your back towards God. Any one of those things could have caused you to harden your heart towards God and not turn towards God. I would wager that all of our stories may have looked hopeless at one point or another, at a given moment in time. But in the common thread that I found in every Christian's testimony, and I'm sure that you've recognized this too, there is an utter humble appreciation for the sovereign mercy of God. We intuitively know whether it is that we grew up in church and we've never strayed far, or if we came to Christ at age 50 after years of wandering in the desert, we are truly, we are most sincerely dependent, ultimately and finally, upon the mercy of God in Christ. And because that's true, no one has any reason or any ground to look down upon someone else. Like, you needed less grace, you needed less forgiveness than anybody else. They say that the the ground is level before the cross. That's true. We are all saved by God's grace alone. And unless his mercy was wide, none of us would have had the right to be called the children of God. And unless his mercy was powerful, none of us would be saved. But praise him, his mercy is wide and his mercy is deep. It is surprising and it is sovereign. It is vast and it is vigorous. In this passage this morning from Romans 9, we're going to see that God has seen fit to prepare these vessels of mercy for glory by calling them not only from Israel, but also from the nations, from the Gentiles. 
His mercy is vast in that sense. And if he had not actively preserved a vital remnant of faithful Israelites, well, then they would have hardened their hearts against God. So his mercy is vigorous. So our big idea this morning is that God's mercy is vast and vigorous. I have just two main points to follow along with this. God's mercy is vast in scope. We'll see that in verses 24 to 26. And then second, God's mercy is vigorous in preservation in verses 27 to 29. Let's pray as we get into this. Father, thank you for your church. And thank you for these people here this morning. The privilege, the pleasure of being able to pray with them, to hear them sing. It's an encouragement to my soul. Father, we need to be encouraged by your word and by your spirit this morning. Help us to take great joy in your salvation. And help us to humbly remind ourselves that we are dependent upon you and you are trustworthy. That your mercy is vast and it is vigorous. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Note first in verses 24 through 26, God's mercy is vast in scope. We're picking up in the middle of 24, which is, seems in your English translation to be right in the middle of a sentence. There's an, an M dash there. So I'll just complete the thought. The, the idea here is that God has prepared vessels of mercy, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As God indeed says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, here they will be called sons of the living God. God's mercy is extensive. It is vast in its scope. So though the nation of Israel was uniquely chosen in the Old Testament, they were his chosen nation. He always intended to include individuals from other nations in his people, into his spiritual family. We mentioned weeks before that in verse 6 of chapter 9, Paul gave us a precise definition of Israel, a more precise one than we had perhaps been working with before. He said, Not all who are from the nation of Israel are part of true, believing, spiritual Israel. So there is a broad definition of Israel that speaks of them as a nation. But then there's a more accurate, a more narrow definition of Israel that only includes those who are truly dedicated to God. Only those who are faithful, spiritual children of Abraham, in that sense, are actually counted as God's offspring or Abraham's spiritual offspring. So, not all Jews are God's chosen people in that saving sense. This is what Paul has shown us previously. And that feels like a constriction when you hear it explained. It sounds exclusive, and it is. Not all from Israel belong to Israel in that sense. But as Paul explained that God has prepared vessels beforehand for mercy by calling them to salvation, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, the other nations, not just Israel, but the other nations as well. That's verse 24. And so he's already told us that not all from Israel belong to Israel, but now he's taking it a step further, it seems. And he's saying that some Gentiles are Israel. In other words, we're zeroing in on the idea of exactly who God's new covenant people are. How are they defined? How are they marked out? 
Under the old covenant, it was the nation of Israel. That was God's people. But Paul points out that under the new covenant, things have shifted. It doesn't include all of ethnic Israel, only those who exercise their faith in Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah. But it's not limited to that nation of Israel anymore. God's people now includes those from other nations. So God has prepared vessels of mercy from the other nations, not just Israel. His mercy then is, in that sense, expansive in its extent. And this really isn't something that comes out of thin air. Paul grounds this in the Old Testament Scripture, as you might imagine. Paul points to two passages from the minor prophet Hosea in the Old Testament to show how it's always been God's goal to include individuals from the nations into his people. Hosea 2.23, he alludes to, which says, And I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Now, if you're not familiar with what's happening there in the context of Hosea, you might be confused when you see that no mercy and not my people are capitalized. That seems strange. Why are those proper nouns? Well, it's because they're names of people. Hosea was a prophet to Israel. And the role of a prophet historically in the Old Testament was always to call the covenant people of God back to obedience to the covenant that they had made with God. Typically, prophets use words to do that. They will bring a word of the Lord. There are occasions when they, they act out spiritual dramatizations of spiritual truths. So in Hosea's instance, uh, he acts something out that perhaps you know about. There's been a covenant that has been made between God and Israel, right? God and his covenant people. And it's described almost like a marriage relationship in the Old Testament. We can see it all over the place. Israel, do you take Yahweh to be your God? We do. Yahweh, do you take Israel to be your people? I do. This is how that covenant relationship between God and his people were described. Just one example from Deuteronomy 29. Deuteronomy 29 verses 10 through 13 says, You are standing today, this is Moses uh, addressing Israel, You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops the wood to the one who draws your water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today. Note that he may establish you today as his people, and that he may be your God, as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Oh, as we know, some of Israel rejected God, didn't they? They began to worship other false gods in idolatry. And so the prophet was sent, Hosea, prophet is sent by God to call them back to faithfulness to that covenant that they had made with God. In this particular instance, the prophet Hosea was instructed in a unique way to act out a dramatization of what is happening here spiritually. Israel had been unfaithful to her covenant with her God, like an unfaithful wife to her husband. So God told the prophet to marry a woman who would be unfaithful to him. They had a daughter that they named No Mercy, as they were instructed to do, because God was going to have no more mercy on Israel because they had been so unfaithful to the covenant. And then they had another child. That child was named Not My People because Israel had broken the covenant. You see, the covenant was meant to signify that Yahweh would be their God and Israel would be his people. 
but they are not his people in any meaningful sense. They're not submitting to him as their God. Israel's unfaithfulness would be punished, and they would turn from their idolatry and back to God. And in like fashion, Hosea's wife would return to him after leaving the man that she had been living with, and he would forgive her, and their relationship would be restored. And God would again have mercy on Israel. And that's why Hosea 2.23 says that he will have mercy on no mercy, and will say to not my people, you are my people. Is a spiritual reality here, as Hosea has prophesied, about God's relationship with the ten northern tribes of Israel. That's what's happening in Hosea's context, but Paul points back to that, that passage, and he says, well, that happened, but that was prophesying in an ultimate sense, in a bigger sense, that God has always intended to call those who were not his people to be his people. He always intended to expand the borders in that sense of who would be included in the faithful covenant relationship with him as his beloved. He includes an allusion to Hosea 1.10 as well. Hosea 1.10 says, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, shall be said to them, Children of the living God. In other words, in that place where there was no faithful covenant relationship with God out there in the pagan nations outside of Israel, they would be called children of the living God. Paul is perhaps emphasizing the need to bring this message of the gospel out into those nations, into those places, to meet people with this message of the gospel where they're at. Remember, this is in part, Romans is in part a missionary letter. He's raising support, getting people excited to bring the gospel to Spain, to those who are not God's people in that nation to let them know that anybody can get in on this deal. Jesus is the true Israel, and those who belong to Christ, by their union with him, become true Israel. This is probably a hopeful message as you can find in Scripture. Those who are not his people, now his people. Here's a shocking question to ask, just reading through this text. Ask this question. If you don't belong to God as part of his people, to whom do you belong? Somebody got the right answer over here. That was not rhetorical. I'm welcome response. That's great. If you don't belong to God, to whom do you belong? The answer is not nobody. It's not an option. The answer is not yourself. It's not how it works. Paul alludes to the book of Hosea as a way of illustrating what it means to be called God's people. It is to be an unfaithful, rebellious, restless, alienated, hard-hearted child of the devil who now is forgiven. But is not just forgiven, is actually now restored and embraced. But not even is just embraced, not only that, is actually called the beloved of God. Friends, have you lost sight of what you've been saved from? Have you lost sight of what you've been saved into? Blessed community of the church. The covenant promises, the covenant blessings of God did not belong to you. They did not apply to you. And yet, in Christ, by faith and through his work, now they do. You who once were far off now have been brought near by the blood of the cross. The ones who rejected as children of the devil, now have the doors flung wide open 
And the invitation comes, come all who are thirsty. This is a great time just to be reminded that none of us is hopeless. None of us is hopeless. Just this week, someone came into the church office to say thanks. A couple of months ago, someone on our staff extended mercy uh, in a tangible sense to someone who had been coming into the church office for months and for years, in fact, from time to time. This person was very clearly high, very clearly took a lot of patience and care in order to deal with this person. But she came back into the office this week just to say thanks. She was clean. She had been sober, and she just wanted to say that she appreciated how she was treated by the member of the staff here. I took that as an admonition. It is so easy for me to live and to act as if God and his arm isn't mighty to save. I can look at somebody's story in the moment and be like, well, I know where that's going. Hmm. No, I don't. Shame on me. It's as if we don't think God can step into someone's story. We don't think God can step into someone's life and turn a tragedy into a story of hope that will be a part of their testimony in the future. Whether it's in one moment or whether it's over the course of years, no one should be given up in despair. God lives. He is the living God. He is active and he is at work in and amongst you and his people. Friend, if if you have been marked by evidence that you don't belong to the people of God through outward, serious, unrepented sin, you too must not give up yourself in despair. God is so free and God is so gracious in his dispensation of mercy that even if you would like to disown yourself, he won't. He will call you his beloved. Repent from your sin, turn to Christ. Pursue the good works which God has prepared beforehand for you to walk in. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit. And if you're stuck in a cycle, reach out for help. We would be glad to help you. This is what we're here for together with one another. Not only is God's mercy vast in its extent, which is to say that it includes even those whom we might least expect, God's mercy is powerful to preserve those whom he calls. We keep reading. In verses 27 to 29, second, God's mercy is effective in preservation. Verse 27, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. God's mercy is powerful to preserve those whom he calls. Remember, Paul's been working through some very difficult concepts, difficult ideas in this portion of the letter, that God made these promises to Israel that we now understand to have been fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus, the Messiah. And yet the people to whom these promises were made aren't all saved. How's that possible? Well, not all children of Abraham are children of God, but some are. That is the concept of a remnant, that word that comes up here in the text. A remnant is a small remaining quantity of something. There is a faithful remnant within national Israel who have embraced Christ as their Messiah. This is Paul speaking to the church in Rome. They are the remnant in this instance. 
And so Paul turns to the prophet Isaiah to establish this idea in Scripture. First, he alludes to Isaiah chapter 10, verse 22, which says, For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. So, just the way that Hosea, the prophet, was used to describe the Gentiles' inclusion into God's people, Paul now is using Isaiah to establish the concept that he is, that God is, preserving a remnant within ethnic Israel who also believe. The prophet Isaiah brought a message of judgment, like Hosea, to Israel for their disobedience to the covenant. But as all prophets do, he also brought a message of hope. Isaiah spoke about the restoration of Jerusalem. That was his big overarching theme throughout the book of Isaiah. But there will be judgment in the meantime. And though Israel had a large population, it says that they're described there as like the sand of the sea, there's a lot of them, only a remnant of them would return to the land after their time of judgment and exile. Their destruction would not be complete because he would ensure that some within ethnic Israel would return to the land. The Lord would not wipe them out completely. So God preserved a faithful remnant within Israel. And then he alludes to Isaiah 1, verse 9, which says, If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. God's preservation is the only hope of salvation. Now, if you recall Sodom and Gomorrah, they were wiped out entirely. There is no remnant of Sodom and Gomorrah. God struck them down in righteous judgment because of their rampant, sinful debauchery. They were detestable people, according to God. You might remember the incident with Lot when the men of the city surrounded his home and demanded that Lot hand over his two male guests so that they could be sexually abused by the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's recorded for us in Genesis chapter 19. And it's recorded for us there as an example of true depravity of a pagan nation. But in Judges chapter 19, we read a shockingly similar story that happens with Israel. A Levite wandered into an Israelite town called Gibeah, and the men of the city there, the tribe of Benjamin, surrounded the home that he was in, and they demanded that he be handed over so that they could sexually abuse him. The story gets worse from there. It's one of the darkest chapters in Israel's history. And the point is, Israel was not exempt from great wickedness. This is not something that just the pagan nations are caught up in. There are moments in the history of Israel that if you take a picture, it looks and sounds as bad as if not worse than the surrounding pagan nations. They should know better. But the Lord of hosts, that's a military title for God, the God of angel armies, if he had been completely just in carrying out his judgment against Israel, his wrath, his righteous judgment, they would have been wiped off the face of the earth, just as completely as Sodom and Gomorrah was. But God did not only act justly towards Israel. He acted mercifully. He preserved some so that a remnant would remain The Lord spared a remnant, a seed, so that Israel's offspring might continue. He would be faithful to the promises that he had made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And we know that 
from having read earlier in Romans 9, from their race, according to the flesh, came the Christ, who is God over all and blessed forever. Amen. The true offspring of Abraham. John Salehammer is an Old Testament scholar, and I think he sums up what we found here so far in Romans 9 concisely in three short statements. He says, Not all Israelites are Israelites. Not all Jews are God's chosen. And not all God's chosen are Jews. I think this is the flow of the logic of the argument that's coming through here in chapter 9. God includes Gentiles into his people, and he preserves a remnant within Israel as his people. So that explains how the, the church in Paul's day was made up of so few Israelites. We would have rightly expected that they would make up the majority of the church. Right? They should be exposed to these promises, the covenant gospel, the covenant gospel promises that have been made to them about the good news of this Messiah. They were so close to the kingdom, but they never entered. But God's mercy is vast in its inclusion of the nations, and it is vigorous in its power to keep those whom he called. God preserved of his own will a remnant of faithful believers within ethnic Israel. Isaiah's testimony about Israel is probably like your own testimony, Christian. If God had not set his powerful love upon you first, you would have continued in stubborn, ignorant rebellion. None of us deserves God's mercy, and yet he extends it in surprising ways. So you see how this doctrine of God's election is a demonstration of his goodness and his love. Had he not chosen to save a remnant, we would all have remained vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. Unless he graciously called us his people, unless he graciously called us his beloved, we would be ruined. But God preserves a remnant. He did it with Israel, and we can say that he's doing it now in his church. Not all Israel is Israel. I think we could rightly say that not all those who take the name of Christian are Christian. Jesus himself says, not all who say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. This is Matthew chapter 7. He goes on, everyone who builds his life on his teaching, on the gospel, however, will not be put to shame. We've seen in recent surveys uh, that are troubling that there are some within evangelicalism that are confused about basic core doctrines of Christianity. 43% of evangelical respondents in a recent survey agreed with this statement, quote, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. You can go to the stateoftheology.com to read more shocking survey results, as if you'd like. Just to be clear, that is 43% of self-described evangelicals who either don't understand or deny passages like Romans 9.5 that plainly say that Christ is God over all, blessed forever. That is about as clear and central as you can get to the gospel. That is not something that you can reject. To deny Jesus' divinity is to deny the gospel. It seems the concept of a faithful remnant might do two things to us. When we think about this concept of a remnant, it might either make us prideful or it might make us anxious. This concept of God's remnant might make us prideful or anxious. There are some who like to boast about how their very narrow tribe of Christianity is alone, the one true remnant. 
everybody who agrees with me on this, every issue, the minor details and stuff, well, they're the faithful remnant. Somehow, the focus of attention in God preserving his remnant shifts to a selfish stamp of approval of our own narrowly defined specific convictions on secondary and tertiary issues. I hope that never characterizes us as a church at Trinity Bible Church. I never want to get the impression or give the impression that Trinity is the faithful remnant. Oh, if only everybody did things like us, well, then the remnant would be larger by definition. No. We are grateful to know that God is work, working in and among us, in spite of us, and He is at work in and among our brothers and sisters across the valley, across the state, across the nation, across the world. So we may not become prideful over thinking that we are somehow working or willing our way into this remnant, and that it defines us, and we've worked our way into this exclusive group. We ought rather to be humbled to be vessels of mercy. Just a quick note, if you find somebody on YouTube who tells you that they are the remnant and they have access to secret knowledge, run. Unsubscribe. Unclick the bell. If somebody says that they have access to secret knowledge from God and they are the faithful remnant, you've stumbled upon a cult. That is not what we want to engage with here. If you have questions about a channel that you found, and you're like, I'm not sure about this teacher, please send them to us. I would love to help you not stumble into heresy. It's the least I could do. <laughs> but the concept of, of a remnant might not only make us prideful, it might make us anxious. Like maybe it's first come, first serve. Maybe the quota has already been filled. Maybe there's no more room at the table if there's a faithful remnant. Maybe it's small. We should be clear that we don't know how many people will be saved. But we also shouldn't assume that it's going to be smaller than it needs to be. After all, God promised that Abraham's children would be more numerous than the stars, didn't he? And Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10 say that there will be a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Just a quick note there, if you took a survey around the throne room of God, 100% of people would say that Jesus is God. Just keep that in mind. <laughs> Friends, if you, if you hear the invitation to the gospel to, to come, all those who are thirsty, if you hear that invitation you are invited to the feast. Don't think I'm not part of the remnant. That's not how this works. Come to Jesus. Come to him out of your darkness, out of your sorrow, out of your night. There is hope. He will not turn you away when you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Friends, God's mercy is vast and it is vigorous. God calls and God keeps Christian he will not let your soul be lost. Take confidence in this. His promises shall last, and He will hold you fast. Let's pray.
following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Well, have you come to faith in Jesus Christ? If you truly have, then at some time you're going to experience some suffering. You're going to experience the sufferings for the glories to follow. It's not that we as Christians suffer all the time, but we will suffer. If you desire to live godly in your life at church, at home, at school, out in the world, if you desire to live godly, you're going to be persecuted. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, he says, And indeed, all you who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, we don't want to hear that. We want a peaceful and quiet life, don't we? That's good and acceptable in the sight of the Lord. But yet within that, there's going to be times of persecution. The Lord Jesus said that if the world hated him, don't marvel in a sense because it's going to hate you. The reality is there is a divide between believers and non-believers. Jesus even made it clear that he didn't come to bring peace, but a sword to divide families. You say, why would he do that? Well, when someone comes to faith, you are immediately spiritually divided with those who haven't come to faith yet. We pray that they do. But then what happens is God, through his righteousness in Christ in us, manifests, then brings about and will bring about persecution in Christ. Now, you may be suffering, maybe at work, for doing the right thing, not being a Christian jerky-jerk person who is demanding their rights or whatever it might be, but submitting to Christ, doing your work heartily unto Him, keeping your mouth shut, being a good slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be persecuted for that. You may be persecuted at home with an unbelieving spouse or relatives that don't know Christ. You may be persecuted at school or whatever it might be out in the world. If you're suffering for Christ, it's difficult at times, and we will all go through that. So if you're going through it now, I pray that you'll be encouraged as we look in the Word. But bank these truths in your heart, because guaranteed, if you're in Christ, there will come some suffering, temporal, by the way, for the glories to follow. Bank those in your hearts so that you know where to turn in the context of suffering that will come for obeying Christ. Today, we're going to see encouragement for difficult times. We're going to see that genuine faith will glorify God and it will also bless His people. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians, and we're looking at chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. We've begun our study of 2 Thessalonians, and so with that in mind, I want to share some context to the book of 2 Thessalonians. If you were with us for our study of 1 Thessalonians, you're probably aware of the context, You might remember in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they came to Thessalonica and shared the Word of God for three weeks, and then they were run out of town. But there was something that happened in Thessalonica. They came to faith in Jesus Christ. They responded to the powerful gospel, chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, and they turned from idolatry to the one and only true God, to serve him and to wait for his son from heaven who delivers us from the wrath to come. And as we saw last week, Thessalonica was a massive metropolis. It was a very wealthy area. 
It was a worldly area. If you look at the Apostle Paul when he shares about a man that had deserted him, he says, Demas has deserted me having loved this present world and gone to Thessalonica. The implication is that's a good place to go if you want to be worldly, right? We see that in the cities, right? We see city life and life apart from Christ. We see that. So the Thessalonians had turned from idols to serve the one and only true living God. They had received the word of God. Chapter 2 of the first letter Paul writes to them. They had received it not as the word of men. If you receive God's word as the word of men, you're not saved. But if you see it for what it really is, the spirit of God has convicted and broken through the hardness of your heart. If you see it for what it really is, then you're going to respond to the word of God. And they received it. Not as the word of men, but the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Chapter 2 of First Thessalonians, verse 13. And now the Apostle Paul, having been bereft of them initially, was concerned about their faith. Was concerned. They were being persecuted, as we will see today. Persecuted for their faith when they came to Jesus. And the persecution, actually, as we'll see later on, increased massively. And the Apostle Paul was concerned about them. So when he was in Athens, he sent Timothy to check in on them. We see that in the first letter he writes to them. And he gets a good report back. He gets a good report back that they're trusting the Lord and they're loving one another and they speak kindly of the Apostle Paul. And so the Apostle Paul shares then in the first letter those instructions for this very young church. And now he does that while he is in Corinth and at some time around spring of 50 A.D., But at that point, it appears that there's been some other issues that have arisen in Thessalonica that the Apostle Paul needs to address. And that's why he writes 2 Thessalonians. And if you've studied the book so far, you'll see in the beginning in this first chapter, which we're going to be touching on today, they were going through very difficult persecution. And within that, there's the temptation to get out from under it, to not trust Jesus Christ, There's those temptations, and Paul wanted to strengthen them in regards of that. And then in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, we see that there was some trouble spiritually going on, that someone had relayed a letter or a message and had put Paul's name on it, and something to the effect that the day of the Lord had come. And thus these Thessalonians, in all their persecution, were going through the day of the Lord. But yet if you understood what Paul wrote to them in the first letter, that would be problematic. Because we see the day of the Lord comes after he removes his church. So they're wondering, are we in the day of the Lord? And so he shares the reality of the day of the Lord won't come unless these certain things come. Which means you didn't miss God's coming for you first. You didn't miss it, Thessalonians. Yes, it's tough, but you didn't miss it. And so then he encourages them so that they wouldn't be shaken or disturbed by a message that was appearing to come from them. And then we see that instead of the destiny of the day of the Lord for those who don't know Christ, they were to gain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. The end of chapter 2. Having been chosen from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 And therefore the Lord wanted to, through Christ, comfort and strengthen their hearts for every good work and word. You see, yes, we do suffer, but God's comfort is abundant if we're willing to go to him. He is the God of all comfort. And this book is a comforting book because it shows what they're truly going through and what God is doing in the midst of that. It also protects them from those who are false. 
And then in chapter 3, after requesting prayer and affirming the Lord's protection of them, the Apostle Paul relays his confidence that these Thessalonians are going to continue to obey the Lord's commands, which leads to the last issue, a command that he needs to reiterate and share. Chapter 3, evidently some people were so enamored with the coming of Christ, they had quit their jobs, and they had become a burden on the body of Christ. And the Apostle Paul would have to remind them of what he taught them and exemplified for them when he first came to them, which was they need to work with their hands and eat their own bread. And if they didn't obey the truth of these things, that believers were not to see them as enemies, but they were not to associate with them so they'd be put to shame and then obey the word of God and be right with the Lord. And so after three short chapters, we have the Apostle Paul writing his second letter to the Thessalonians. And evidently, it's very close to the timing in which he had written his first one. In the beginning of the first letter, he says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. We saw last week. In the second one, he says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, which means they're still together, which means this had to have been during this 18-month stay in Corinth. So it's probably only a couple months after his first letter, which means this church is still under a year old in the faith. And the Apostle Paul expects them to know the Word of God and to obey the Word of God because they have a real relationship with the God of the Word. See, the problem in churches these days is people dumb down the Word of God because no one's obeying it because they don't have a relationship with Christ. Therefore, they don't share the Word of God, and people, if they are believers, they're not fed, and people who aren't believers feel as though they're following the Lord. But the Apostle Paul shared truth with these Thessalonians, deep truth, in the first three weeks of being with them, he says, remember what I shared in First Thessalonians. He also reminds them in Second Thessalonians about what he had shared. And so the reality is, if you're a true believer with the Spirit of God and sin's not in the way, you can receive the Word of God and you can start learning and building and growing in Christ. So with that in mind, I want to point out one last thing about this book before we get into our passage. We have within this book... Christ mentioned once, we have the Lord mentioned ten times, we have the Lord Jesus three times, we have he, him, or himself referring to Christ nine times, and we have the phrase, Lord Jesus Christ, nine times. This book is about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about Christ, and therefore what he has determined and declared will happen, and how we are able to endure the difficulties and the troubles that come upon us for following Christ. So with that in mind, today we're going to see encouragement for difficult times. Now, some of you may be in difficult times because you're not saved. You're just reaping the consequences of your sins. If you sow, you're going to reap. Some of you may be saved and you're still reaping from previous sin. Well, sow to the Spirit, you'll eventually reap from the Spirit, okay? But admit it, I'm reaping from my consequences. Some of you may be believers who are being disciplined by the Lord because we all are going to be disciplined if we're legitimate children. I'm not talking about those things. Now, God can use suffering as discipline to us, absolutely. But we need to recognize our sin. So as I share this message, don't just think anything bad in my life is suffering for Christ. No, it's suffering for righteousness sake that he's talking about here. Suffering for Jesus, for obeying him and following him. And if you're a true believer, it's going to happen. And when it happens, what do we do? We need to be encouraged. Because as we're going to see, genuine faith will bring about thanksgiving to God, and it will also encourage other believers. And so we're going to look at the genuine faith of these Thessalonians, which should encourage us. Okay, let's take a look at our passage. 
I want to start at verse 3 after the greeting we saw last week, but I'm going to read through because literally this is, I mean, I love the way Paul writes. It's a run-on. It goes all the way through. When I was in school, run-on, run-on, take off points. I like this. Paul is giving a run-on here. It's one basic sentence. It's basically a sentence from verse 3 all the way to the end of the chapter. So we need to remember that even though we're looking at verses 3 and 4, it's connected. So don't forget that. It says here in verse 3, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each of you towards one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. That's what we're going to look at today, but let's keep reading. This is, now notice it's in italics, it's implied, it's not originally in there, but it's helping us in the translation. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. Remember that. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his power, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow, there's a wonderful passage. And we're not going to get into the later portions here, but the Lord's saying, hey, yes, you are suffering greatly. You're suffering greatly, but I haven't missed a beat. I'm going to take care of those who afflict you. Just trust me. At the right time, he's going to take care of that. And so with this in mind, we come to our passage, and we see here the beginning. And I want to point out the grammar of our passage, of the two verses we're going to look at today. In verse 3, we have this statement, we ought always to give thanks to God for your brethren as is only fitting. Okay. Then we have a reason. Look at the word. Because... Your faith is greatly enlarged. The love of each of you is toward each other grows ever greater. Then in verse 4, we have the logical conclusion. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. That's the basic structure of this passage. And you may have noticed that this passage is about faith. And I believe we're going to see that increasing faith in Christ brings about continual thanksgiving to the Lord. Again, verse 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren. He shares an interesting statement here. He says, we are literally obligated in debt to always give thanks to God for you, brethren. He's saying we're indebted to continually, habitually give thanks to God for you or concerning you, And he says, brethren, he's speaking to Thessalonian believers. They are brethren. 
You see, when you trust in Jesus Christ for salvation from your sins, you are delivered from darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. You become a child of God. You are now in a relationship with your heavenly father through Christ who loves you. And we become children of God and thus brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ with one another. First John 3 verse 1, see how great a love the father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. How much love that is. We were separated by sin. We were a rebellious creation of his, and we were in rebellion and sin, but by Christ we were reconciled. We are now his children. And he says, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And he's going to go on and talk there in First John. Tremendous reality. This is to believers. This is not to make believers. This is to believers. Those who've truly trusted in Christ. And so he says here, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren. Now, later on in this same book, in chapter 2, verse 13, he's going to use some of the same language. Notice this. Look a little farther up. And he doesn't use this in any other places, basically. He uses this here with the Thessalonians, which is very interesting. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. But we should always give thanks to you, brethren. And actually, the word ought is in there. It's the same phrase. We're indebted. We're indebted to give thanks. Now, why did he say it there? Brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks there. But now, in the beginning of this letter, he's giving thanks for some other reasons. He's giving thanks. He says here, we ought to always do it. And notice, he says always, and there's a reason, because we ought always to give thanks to God for you. And he's saying here, as is only fitting. We'll look at that in a minute. The term, it means, it literally means worthy. It comes up on the scales of balance. It is worthy, you actually are worthy of us giving thanks continually to God, and we are indebted to do it. What's happening in your life is worthy of thanksgiving. Now he says why. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting or worthy or the right thing, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and I said because, and the love for each of you towards one another grows ever greater. It's fitting. It's the right thing. What's happening in your lives, he talks about their faith and their love, is worthy. It raises the stand up to the balance of worthiness to give God thanks. We are obligated to give thanks to God always for you, brethren. And this giving of thanks is worthy or appropriate based on what has happened. And notice he says two things because of two specific things. Your faith and your love. He's going to talk about that. But he's going to talk about the qualities of the faith and love, which are that which is worthy of giving thanks. Notice he says, first of all, because your faith is greatly enlarged. And now he uses a Greek word here, hooper, adzano. Adzano speaks of growth. It's usually spoken of of plants growing. Look at the lilies in this. You know, they grow. When you see plants growing, you know, it's adzano. And we see in Acts, it was translated increasing concerning the word going out and God saving people through the word and the church was increasing. 
And they would say the word. The word was increasing. You see that throughout Acts, that little phrase, which was pointing to the fact that the word was bringing changed lives because of what it shared concerning Christ, and the church was growing. It was growing. It was increasing. And then we see also within that this idea of speaking of the faith, the faith growing, as we're going to see here. But also it's used to speak of the body of Christ growing and every joint supplying one another. Natural growth, in a sense. But what's interesting, he doesn't just use this word, adzano. He adds this Greek prefix, in a sense, that's in the Greek language, hooper, which makes it speak of it this way, growing abundantly or to increase beyond measure. Uh, NASB says, greatly enlarged. Now, what was the object of their faith? A lot of people have faith. James chapter 2, the demons have faith, right? But it's not a saving faith. It depends on what the object of your faith is. And what was the object of their faith? Remember, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, their faith was in God. And their faith had been broadcast throughout Macedonia and Achaia. You see, the reality is our faith is in Jesus Christ. What does James tell his readers in chapter 2, verse 1? He says, Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus with an attitude of personal favoritism. Our faith is in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. God, who took on human flesh, who lived the perfect life, who went to the cross as the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, who died for our sins and rose from the dead. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. And within that, we believe in Jesus, but we also believe in what he says. We believe in his word because it's his word. You see, the reality is, if we truly believe in Jesus Christ, we're going to believe what he says. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. We're going to believe the truth of what he's done for us. We're going to believe in the truth of what's revealed in the word of God concerning us also. The truth of his word that convicts and also corrects and trains and teaches us. Indeed, in chapter 2, verse 13, and I've read it a couple times, we see that the Thessalonians were chosen from the beginning for a salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. We believe in the one who is the way and the truth and the life.
ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.